Time to return to our series on New Zealand sporting history now. We do it each Thursday afternoon and it was 28 years ago this month when World Rugby made the decision that changed the face of rugby in this country and around the world. They allowed rugby union players to be paid, effectively turning the sport professional. Before then, rugby union was considered a strictly, a strictly amateur sport. And our guest to help remember those times, sports broadcaster Keith Quinn, one of the longest serving rugby commentators in New Zealand, the voice of All Black Test Rugby. He joins me now. Hi, Keith. Kia Jesse. Kia ora. Great to talk to you. How are you enjoying this Rugby World Cup, having covered pretty much every Rugby World Cup since they began? <laughs> yes, uh, I'm enjoying it very much. Uh, I don't say I get up in the middle of the night to watch every game, but I watch all the significant ones and I keep the record. So in my retirement years, I've been trying to write little boutique books about each Rugby World Cup and mm. I've just finished 2003. So they now are going one ahead of me again. So I've got to keep working and thinking about the ones of the past. But it's been <laughs> fun and continues to be fun. That was a tough tournament, 2003, tough for New Zealand. As I recall, Wales almost uh, gave us a fright in the quarters, and then was it it Aussie who beat us in the semis? Yes, I can remember the Welsh commentators in the box next to us dancing at half-time because (laughs) their team had scored four tries and were leading. Their Welsh team was coached by Steve Hansen, uh, but (laughs) New Zealand played its best rugby of the tournament and, and then put 50 points on them in the end. Uh, and then, of course, uh, while we were very pleased with ourselves, uh, we got thumped next Saturday by Australia, and uh, that was the end of it. Yeah, that was Carlos Spencer and the banana kicks and all that stuff, the big intercepts. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that one, Keith, <laughs> although perhaps one day we can. Um, we're talking about the mid-90s, and can you paint us a bit of a picture of, of what rugby was like in New Zealand, what the sport was like here in the few years leading up to 1995? Well, rugby, as you quite rightly pointed out, it was always amateur. It came out of the schools and the universities of, of Britain and expanded into the into the empire, uh, and it was always an amateur game. Uh, if you wanted to be paid uh, for playing uh, the oval ball game, there was a breakaway in the north of England uh, and they formed this game called Northern Union. Ah. Uh, and later that name was changed to Rugby League. So that ah. was the breakaway to uh, to pay players to play. And uh, and the Rugby League, of course, uh, I think it was started in about 1920, has become a hugely successful offshoot uh, in certain parts of the world. Uh, not totally with the expanse that Rugby Union has, but uh, nevertheless, it's huge in Australia, as we know, uh, and in north of England and in, in France, etc., etc. They have their own World Cup too. But the All Blacks, the, the Rugby World was still an amateur game, even though the pro game broke away. And they stayed amateur right through a player getting in the All Blacks right through those years, all the way up to the 1970s, would only get expenses per day. And sometimes, looking back now, it's a joke to think about what those expenses were. Sometimes just a few pounds a day, really just for uh, your shaving gear uh, or a haircut or a cup of tea if you wandered down the, to the corner of the 
to, of the area you were touring to uh, and had a cup of tea and a, and a bun, back at the hotel where you were staying, and yes, you were well looked after. There were full meals and you were well looked after. You didn't have to spend any money. That was the host union looking after the touring team. But then the players realised, the players realised that there must be an awful lot of money coming into the game because look at the crowds we can mm-hmm. draw, the uh, All Blacks on tours to, to Britain and to South Africa and indeed into Australia and the monies that can be earned in New Zealand from teams that toured here. And it was the players who thought, well, everybody else is getting us, uh, getting monies except us. Uh, the rugby unions are, are taking it all. So... A movement began, it grew first of all from a little gang of of players talking to each other and gradually it grew and it grew, uh, that corny expression, like Topsy, until it was (laughs) a movement, a movement to, uh, for some return for the players. Now that was in about the mid-80s and then in the early 90s, uh, Sorry, players, Keith. Were there particular were there particular place players associated with that movement, or was it all sort of going on behind closed doors? Was there a face of it? Yes, I suppose you've got to say Andy Hayden oh, yeah. led a lot of it in New Zealand. Uh, he was, uh, 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 what do they say? He was a player, but this the checks were waiting to be uh, to arrive, kind of thing. It was his, mm-hmm. one of his lines. Uh, and there was a, there was certainly movement, but then sponsorship came in to uh, enable the players to stop going to rugby league. The lure to go to rugby league was huge around that time in the nineties. We had all black players who were in the team that won those early World Cups, who were lured away to to British rugby league, to Australian rugby league. And we lost and we continued to lose top players. John yeah. Gallagher went. Uh, some was some a, names. Was he was a big one. Yeah, John Gallagher. I mean, yeah. eventually um, John Kerwin. I'm just doing this off, yeah, off the top he, of my head. That was, um, that was huge. Mark Ellis. Those guys went. Yes, Frano Botica, another yeah. guy. Yeah. And Frano went to rugby league and became huge in Britain well, with his ability to kick goals. He could win games for clubs over there and winning games meant more people came to watch the winning mm. team, more money's there for. And so uh, to stop that, the sponsorship kicked in around rugby union and it kind of t- players got monies under the table uh, oh, yeah. and to keep, them in, to keep them in rugby union. Nobody quite talked about it, but it was certainly loudly whispered that uh, this uh, was happening for rugby union players. So when they went off to the World Cup about 1995 in South Africa, yeah. there was a, 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 all the players were receiving, I think it was called the New Zealand Club or the All Blacks Club uh, from our angle out here, uh, significant monies to uh, appease them and keep them in the game. And not having to go through the indignities that the earlier All Blacks team had. You know, Colin Meads told me that he saved his daily rate, as it was called, when he first was in the All Blacks, so that he could buy his new wife a washing machine oh, when they got home because uh, he they, they had no money. Yeah. They had to, he had to hire his father 
to come and work on the farm while he was away uh, and all this sort of stuff. But that was it was demeaning when you think back now. Okay, rugby so, was an amateur game. So this un- under-the-table arrangement and some sponsorship, but I guess there's still a ceiling, right, and still a bit of a um, – that would cast aspersions on rugby players who would make money from, say, writing a book or, or doing anything that might get a few dollars coming in the door. It wasn't – it wasn't purely professional in that you could just earn what you what you wanted to earn. If you if you wrote a book about your career in rugby and, and it was um, uh, published and the monies went to you, you were banned. You were banned from playing Gosh. rugby union. It was really amateur. Yeah. Uh, and um, however, uh, the name Rupert Murdoch came into the story. He looked at his TV one day at the World Cup. Uh, in 1995, and he said to his the people around him, uh, I want sports to be on, um, to have rugby union, and I want that guy there on my rugby uh, channel, cha- games on my channel. And he was pointing the, at the TV figure of Jonah Lomu. Oh, gosh. And so, so approaches were made to rugby people, and sure enough, uh, Murdoch, he eventually offered rugby a, stup- a stupendous amount of money in 1995. 550 million US dollars was Gosh. then a massive amount of money. It's still a pretty good sum of money. It was a, for a 10-year deal offered to rugby to come out of the amateur uh, time and play in a special tournament that he was starting out. Now, it was called uh, a new group called Sansa which you can easily see the acronym was South Africa, New Zealand and Australia mm. Rugby. And uh, uh, on the World Cup in South Africa in 1995, the third World Cup, we were all there with our um, reporting on the games and New Zealand was playing great rugby and they were battling through. They thrashed England in the semi-final with Jonah Lomus starring with four tries. Uh, and... We went to the final at um, Johannesburg and there was a press conference called. Now, at the press conference, uh, there were hundreds of journalists from around the world because they knew there was something in the air. And into the room filed three men, uh, Richie Guy from New Zealand, uh, Leo Williams from Australia and Louis Late. From South Africa, who was a powerful, <laughs> what yeah, a character! Powerful, yeah, a millionaire, uh, might even have been a billionaire uh, in his time, and he came into the room and he chaired the meeting and he announced that there would be a tournament beginning next year uh, called Super Rugby, and it would be twelve teams, uh, five from New Zealand. Uh, that'd be called the Auckland Blues and the Wellington, the, the Waikato Chiefs and the Wellington, they attached the names of the towns to the teams from New Zealand, mm. Christchurch Crusaders, the uh, the Dunedin, the Otago Hurricanes, etc., Otago Highlanders, etc. Uh, then four teams from uh, South Africa, three from Australia to make 12 teams going into this new tournament and any tests to be played in the first 10 years would also be uh, in the under the shadow of mm. Sansa, and the players would be paid. You could, I can still remember the people in the in the room in the room at that press conference rushing for their phones. <laughs> Tele- telephones then were telephones then were huge things that you sort of had to go and stand outside yeah. or 
or book a court, but that was uh, huge news. And the final for the World Cup in 1995 was played against the backdrop of this announcement from just a day before. And the game was going pro. So uh, it's there was a lot to play for. The world rugby, who were supposedly the amateur body overseeing the game at all levels around the world, they, of course, were taken by uh, some kind of surprise yeah. about this announcement of Rupert Murdoch and the Sanzar group and the monies involved. And they, at their next meeting in Paris later that year, they had to say to each other, gulp, New Zealand, South Africa and Australia are paying their players. We've got to all all do it. Gosh. So the world rugby within months had agreed that the game would change from amateur and become professional. Mm. And so it did. And it's been a pro game ever since. What was your initial reaction, Keith? Well, I suppose we were quite happy for most of the, say, 70s and 80s at the way the game was going. They seemed happy enough. Uh, I was touring along with them and I was probably my uh, daily rate of expenses from TVNZ for touring would be better than some of these hotshot All Blacks making all the headlines. Uh, But that's the way rugby was perceived. It was the amateur game, the professional games was rugby league. And uh, so it was a surprise, but very quickly uh, we knew that uh, this was here to stay. And so I can remember the next year in New Zealand, we all went up to Palmerston North, Palmerston North, and watched a game between the Auckland Blues and the Wellington Hurricanes, which was the first professional game in the uh, Sanzar series in New Zealand, the Super Series. And I, I can't tell you the score, I can't remember, but it was a great occasion. A huge crowd turned up and out came the players, the same players, same names that had played for the All Blacks the yeah. year before and the top provincial players, but they were now pros. And, uh, and, and that started the professional games in New Zealand and away we went and it's been uh, for good or bad reasons the pro, there's pros and cons to the situation of rugby in New Zealand now, uh, but that's the way it's been for the game uh, to the point where some of the players now around the world would be making not a lot of money compared with what football players get, rug, uh, soccer players or even rugby league players, uh, but they're making money into the millions in their various money monies, uh, dollars or pounds or whatever, francs, uh, euros, there's a lot of money to be made and a good living to be made. Not not just for playing, but now free to take endorsement deals, that sort of thing? Yes, indeed. Yeah, indeed. That, that can be, that uh, is part of the deal. And uh, uh, I can remember one of the, uh, in the old amateur days, one of the All Blacks who was the captain of the team was uh, endorsing uh, a farm uh, the tractor and the British Isles team arrived and they were all amateurs and they were horrified about this. They were absolutely <laughs> horrified that, uh, that, that they, they were, um, they were doing these sort of things, but players did all kinds of, um, I'm going to use the word sneaky, all kinds of things that were sneaky to, to get a little bit of more money than, than 
they could with the amateur um, um, dignity, the amateur pressures that were on them to stay yeah. uh, totally amateur and not be paid. There would have been a whole generation of All Blacks, uh, I mean, every All Black up until 1995, but there would have been some who just missed out on the professional era who, who I imagine would have been a little bit bitter about it. Yes, and in and, and times, you know, I've got a newspaper clipping at home about the, the Otago Rugby Union farewelling its players for the 1951 Tour of Australia, and it's listed what each player was given. Uh, so-and-so was given a shaving cream and uh, and brush and uh, razor. So-and-so was given a rug to put around his feet for the flight to Australia, around his knees in the, in the plane, uh, and all sorts of stuff like that, which when you think about it now was just silly. And the, the Aussie the Aussie team that toured Britain, admittedly this was the, in tough times just after the war, 1947 I think it was, the players got a letter from the Australian Rugby Union to say, you've got to turn up on this date, bring your, uh, one pair of boots, one pair of socks, one pair of shorts, uh, we will provide you with a Australian rugby jersey, which must be returned uh, at the end of the tour, uh, and it's a 30 30 match tour. Uh, and so uh, that's what the, the players had to do, and they they turned up with their club socks. They were they were actually handed a pair of Australian socks to wear as well. But it, it, this was it was strictly amateur. Totally amateur, and they were given a little bit of a um, monies to have every day, just for that cup of tea and a bun on the corner if they wanted yeah. to. Otherwise, stay and have the the <laughs> hotel brekkie and the hotel lunch and the hotel dinner. I'm talking to Keith Quinn about the advent of professional rugby in New Zealand. It's our series on sports history. And Keith, possibly a tougher question for you, but how do you think professionalism has impacted the game of rugby, the game that we actually see when we tune into a test or a super rugby match? Well, I don't, uh, I've retired now and I belong to a, a club in Wellington. I'm very proud to belong to the Wellington Club and we're, we're a club that's uh, struggling along because uh, they say that monies will come to all the clubs in New Zealand uh, so that they can keep going like they were in the, their glory days. Uh, but I I'm, I worry about the game now because the, the players at the top level are making all the money and there's nothing really of significance dripping down uh, to the clubs. Uh, and so the traditional clubs, not just my club, but every club in Wellington is uh, uh, is struggling. The, the same numbers are dropping off all over the country. And you look at the, at the towns you drive through and there's rugby clubhouses there and you go and look in them and they're beautiful places. They're like shrines to a game that once was king and is no longer king. It's... It's but they're on the wall of the of, of the faces of the teams from the past, from the noble years, and uh, the the places where the the money the the after match functions were put out and the speeches were made by men who had blazers on who could hardly button up the blazers, and it was New Zealand rugby tradition. Now those buildings are still there, and they're beautiful buildings. Uh, and what's I ask what's going to happen to them because the number of people wanting to play the game is falling 
that's because uh, men uh, and and women soon, I think, men certainly go into the gyms to get fit, and they become bigger, and they become stronger that way. Therefore, the collisions between two players running and colliding with each other are stronger. Therefore, we have to worry about concussion. Therefore, we have to worry about um, mummy and dad allowing their wee Johnny to play the game when there's so many other games that they can play now. So there's got to be this this attention in the World Cup in South Africa to safety and discussions and looking uh, to people about the, the tackles and the head knocks is really a good thing because they've got to attend to that because the players are bigger and stronger uh, now and they'll knock a lot of people out of the ability to play the game. Rugby, it used to be said, John Graham, the headmaster of Auckland Grammar School and a great all-black captain, he used to say rugby is a great game because it's a game for all shapes and sizes. Well, it's not now. Uh It's not now. And, uh, and can you point to pro- can you point to professionalism as the cause of that? In, when in a way, yes, because players wanted to win, so they were able to spend more time training, uh, more time get up in the morning, go to the gym, and train all all morning, have a bit of lunch, go and run around the f- uh, field afterwards with, in the team. Um, meetings, working out lineouts, right. backline moves, and, and that's because they don't so have they, a day job to go to. They don't need to go to a day job, you know. Uh, again, I come back to the Meads brothers, Colin and Stan, beautiful uh, rugby guys of their times. They got fit by chopping back the gorse on the farm <laughs> and running home for for lunch, <laughs> and running back up the hill to do it in the afternoon. Uh, and and men were a lot of farmers were all blacks. Uh, and a lot of guys in butchers shops and school teachers and bus drivers. That's what uh, New Zealand rugby was. But those guys, uh, are, well, they're not, not there anymore because you can be identified at secondary school, go into an academy and be a rugby player uh, all of your working life and hope that you make enough money to set up a a coffee house or a, um, a gymnasium to work in afterwards to create your career there uh, or study alongside your training for rugby and become uh, something mm. in, in academically. Uh, it's and, become a business, uh, right? And and, we, and when a sport yeah, becomes a business, the incentives change. Um, some people complain there's too much rugby now, and, and maybe that's a, another way of saying you know that that rugby is too accessible that maybe you used to go along to watch your club games Keith because actually it was one of your only opportunities to actually see a game of rugby now while you've got it all on TV maybe that indirectly has meant that this professional broadcast rugby has eroded or even hollowed out the game yes it has what my club had 17 all blacks in its time uh, and they used to play in our senior team and that was the same all over the country. And the best of our cl- club got into the representative teams. And the rep teams had All Blacks playing for them. So when Wellington played Auckland or uh, Canterbury played Otago, there were lots of All Blacks or potential All Blacks in the games playing. So that's how you got up the ladder. Uh, but you made your mark on the field to play, etc. So 
the game has changed enormously. The style of the game has changed. The players today are so much better uh, by this uh, ability to play the game skillfully yeah. uh, because they had more time to train to be uh, And to more be investment, I suppose, too, hey? Yes, exactly, mm. exactly. It's, so it's been a... It's been a fascinating thing to watch all of my kind of working life, with the evolution of it, and I suppose, uh, well, I'll still be watching it, uh, but I, I worry a little bit about the bottom tier of the game in New Zealand, the middle tier of the game in New Zealand, and then the hits that are, that are put down on the big guys who smash into each other in the World Cups. But I still look at the, each game and I say, now, can we beat France? Can Ireland beat uh, South Africa? Can this team beat that team? Because uh, in the end, it's the results, points on the board that uh, yeah. <laughs> that we all look to. What and about, all and, about and sorry, I'm sort of lingering on the negative effects of professionalism, just because I think it's an interesting time to take stock of what's happened over the past 30 years or so. But what about people complain that it's a frustrating game to watch these days? Um, uh, you know, the the ever-changing rules, the, how long it takes to put a scrum down, the lack of understanding of rucks and malls. And what's your view on that? Why has that all happened? Why are the rules so complicated? And how has rugby apparently sort of diverted from what it used to be, which is people running the ball up the field and trying to score tries, to much more tactical, much more pick-and-go and arguably less exciting to watch? Yeah, I wish I wish they'd do certain things in the game to change it to make it better. In my opinion, but not many other people who have changed the rules uh, at meetings in Britain uh, agree. Like, for instance, when you get a penalty and you kick to the corner to have a line out, and then you run up to the line out and you have your team has the throw in. Mm. I'd say if you kick it out there, you run up to that line out, the other team gets the throw in. Oh yeah, that's that'd be a big change. I'm, I get, I get sick and tired of seeing drive-over tries yeah. scored by hookers. Right. And one day, one time last year, or might have been the year before, there were eight tries scored around the world by hookers at lines, drive-overs from lines, uh, line-outs. Four in a test in New Zealand, two in a test in South Africa, and two in a test in Britain, all on the same day, all, all scored by hookers. Nothing against hookers. They're all good guys, etc., uh, etc. Et They're playing the game. But why not change that law so that the, when you kick into the corner, you give up shooting for goal for three points uh, and you get you concede the penalty to the other team and they have the they will have a trickery on their throw in uh, to get out of trouble and to keep the so you have to attack the game from the penalty, the midfield penalty that you previously might have just kicked for the corner and gone for a drive over. But not many people seem to agree with that. Um, uh, the, as for the collapsing of the scrums, don't ask me, Jesse. It's too complicated for me. And I'll quote Sean Fitzpatrick here. He told me that when he finished playing the game and his illustrious career, uh, he said within a year and a bit, uh, and, and even when in the late years of playing his final club rounds, when the whistle went and he was at the bottom of a ruck, he used to look up uh, and say, wonder which way the referee's got his arm up because he couldn't work out what the whistle had gone for. And uh, he's, he's, it's, it's become very complicated. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's sad. Uh, there's a, the old story about kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. 
that's I'd love to see more of that come into into rugby, uh, but especially my theory about which a few other of my uh, grouchy mates uh, agree to. If you kick it into the corner and have a line-out drive over attempt, you concede the throw into the team, the other team, like you do in any, any other kick-out and uh, in, in any other part of the field. We'll leave it there, Keith. We're coming up to the pips. Really appreciate your in-depth knowledge of that time and some of your thoughts on perhaps uh, some changes, changes for the future. Real privilege to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much, Jesse. We'll have to get you on to talk Beatles again sometime. I love talking Beatles with you. Oh, yeah, I'm available. Okay, good stuff. (laughs) Keith Quinn, who has over 500 books on the Beatles, but that's another story. Today he's been talking about the advent of professionalism in rugby here in New Zealand and around the world.